Ice to Your Earbuds, a podcast about hockey, featuring things to do with hockey. From your friends at ESPN, it's ESPN on Ice with Wachinski and Kaplan. It's ESPN on Ice, the podcast where ESPN talks about hockey. I'm Greg Wachinski, senior NHL writer. I'm Emily Kaplan, national NHL reporter, and Greg... I just have to give a disclaimer to our listeners. If you are listening to this list <laughs> thinking that you're going to get some gritty content, that was 2018. Yeah, among the also 2018s, uh, Seattle was 2018. I was thinking maybe Seattle was that. Also, uh, sports gambling was uh, 2018 as well. I thought that might have been this year. Um, but all those deals the NHL cut with uh, various uh, sports books for 2018. So those things do not make the cut, unfortunately, for they are ineligible for this list of the best of 2019. Uh, but these 10 things aren't. And uh, we begin whimsically, Emily. Number, t- number 10. Woof, woof. Number 10. Seemingly every NHL team got a dog this year. Indeed, Greg, if we were going to do the deep dive history, the anthropology of this incredibly important NHL trend, I believe we have to date back to Barclay. Uh, He was the St. Louis Blues dog, and the Blues were the first team to get a dog. At least that's what they'll tell you. And, you know, I don't think it was a coincidence that they got him around the same time that they were in last place in the NHL. It feels like... Not necessarily a coincidence, you know, uh, maybe our team sucks, mm-hmm. but hey, we've got a really cute good boy that you should root for and gives you a reason to root for the Blues. It's kind of crazy that the Blues got an official team dog years after David Backus left. You know, you figure if he was there, that that's when it would have happened. But it, it was an adorable pup. And honestly, I could watch video of, of sweet boys and sweet girls uh, trying to walk on the ice and have the little skitter scatter feet going. I could watch that all day, and now every team has one, and it's it's really the best. Yeah, who doesn't want to watch Tom Wilson snuggling anything, am I right? But uh, yeah, those dog calendars definitely were the beginning of it, and the Capitals are one of the most recent uh, teams to get a dog, and I will not lie, I've seen on loop that picture of their dog reuniting with Ovechkin after who knows how much time away, like on loop 64 times. It's the stupidest video. It's like three seconds. The dog's just walking down the hallway, but it's pretty great. Uh, there's other teams that get dogs too. And, you know, let's just remember that they're doing this for a good purpose. These dogs are being trained, being acclimated to being in crazy social situations and eventually are supposed to go out in the world and do great things. The Rangers dog has now working with a kid with autism. Um, you know, there's other great things these dogs are being trained for, but I must admit, I think uh, Barclay is not going anywhere. I, I think he's sticking with the Blues for the time being. I'm not sure what happened there, but uh, good for them for keeping that good boy around. The Islanders dog actually just uh, ran for county commissioner. Isn't that crazy? And won. It's fantastic. Um, the That's why they have the new arena. Actually, actually, the dog was, in, uh, was uh, responsible for the Barclays Center. Ha uh, I feel, I believe the epicenter for all of this is the players with puppies calendars, don't you think? That was the first inkling, the first, the first connection between hockey and pooches. Whereas, you know, watching, watching, uh, Tom Wilson snuggle a, a, a puppy. Oh, note to Penguins fans, I said, uh, snuggle a puppy, not smother when I was talking about Tom Wilson. Just, just to clarify. I know you might have heard it differently. Number nine on the top 10 stories of 2019. The PW 
HPA, the Professional Women's Hockey Players Association. Um, this was huge news, not only because uh, a group of the best, most elite uh, women's hockey players in the world combined to create a new organization and combined to create a barnstorming tour of USA versus Canada games to uh, drum up support and uh, keep those national teams in the zeitgeist and route to not only the next world championships, but also the next Olympics, but because they banded together to say, we are not playing in the National Women's Hockey League this year. And boy, did some of them openly root for the demise of the National Women's Hockey League in the hopes that if the NWHL didn't exist, that perhaps a WNHL could exist. 2019 was a tumultuous time for the landscape of women's hockey. It began when the CWHL made the surprise decision to fold. And if you'll remember, the CWHL and NWHL were rivals. It was a Canadian league and North American, uh, an American league, rather, two leagues across North America, dispersing the best talent and maybe diluting the product. And everyone just assumed, okay, once the CWHL folds, we're finally going to get all the best players at once. But these 200 players, uh, roughly at the time, said, hey, the NWHL NWHL is not what we want to play in. This is not the league that treats us professionally. We cannot make a living wage in this league. We can't even get things like laces on our skates or ice time and and we're taking buses to games and it's just not cool. So they made the brave decision. They said, we're going to take, you know, one step back to hopefully take one giant leap forward and do better for the game and, and better for the next generation. Yeah. And, and I wonder at the end of the day, like what the ramifications are. I, I think these players have been so shrewd when it comes to playing the PR game and, and drumming up support and having public sentiment uh, as the wind in their sails in trying to push the game forward. I don't think they came out looking that great in this one, um, especially when there are a number of women who just want to play and if they can make money, great but just want a place to play and know that maybe they're not good enough to play in an, an WNHL or whatever. Um, I feel, I feel like on the one hand, banding together is great. And the USA Canada series is great. On the other hand, they kind of looked a little cruel in some of their comments, um, disregarding the players who decided to remain in the NWHL. They figured, hey, if there's no star power there, if you're not getting the Kendall Coins or the Amanda Castles, um, you're not going to succeed. But look, the NWHL is still standing. They say they're still growing. It's still a little murkiness on their finances, but um, they're still there. And I think in the end of the day, what I'd love to see is these women to get their league that they want a sustainable league, maybe a little bit of a flashier league, a more higher-end league. And why can't the NWHL be the developmental league for that? Sort of the D-league for them. Oh, that's interesting. Um, number uh, eight on our list of the top ten stories this year, labor peace. My God. The NHL is going to have labor peace through at least 2022 as the players and owners both opted not to reopen the collective bargaining agreement early uh, decided to keep it in place. They both have the right to do so. And the NHL's uh, CBA will now run its course through 2022. This is a significant story, one, because Labor Peace and Gary Bettman are, are antithetical and you don't expect them to coexist. And two, because, 
essentially now there's no hard, scary deadline for the next couple of years. And what you start hearing from the NHL side of the ledger is the players aren't necessarily compelled to negotiate at this point. Yeah, I like to call myself the Forrest Gump of journalism. Wherever I go, big things happen. I started at Penn State and the Jerry Sandusky scandal broke. My first internship was in Boston at the Boston Globe. It was the same summer of like Aaron Hernandez, uh, the Boston Marathon, Tim Tebow. You get where I'm going with this. Mm -hmm. So, of course, when I become a hockey writer and the first time that a labor deal comes on the table – um, the total opposite happens. Nothing happens. So I'm just Forrest Gump here. Um, but to not make this about me, the two issues that really the players wanted and um, are so passionate about are escrow. We've heard that again and again and the Olympics. And I believe the players came to the realization, as was probably advised by their lawyers, that the Olympic issue is just not going to be solved in the CBA. It's not just you fighting against the NHL. It's you fighting against the NHL who also has to work with the IOC, which is a crazy corporation, and the IFC, and all these different parties involved, and we're just not going to guarantee anything at our CBA. But the escrow thing is still huge, and these are the negotiations that are going on behind the scenes as well as things like the World Cup of Hockey. Um, and I, I think they'll get solved. I think we'll have a little bit of a recalculation of the salary cap and the inflators and all of that jazz, but it's not really sexy stuff to talk about, and it really <laughs> has kind of hit the back burner. Yeah, it certainly has. certainly has. Um, so that was number eight. Number seven. This was something that a lot of us didn't think was going to happen. Kind of hoped that it would. The firing of Mike Babcock by the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, Babcock, of course, in the midst of a long-term eight-year contract. Uh, considered to be one of the best coaches in the world by some. Uh seemingly had more power on that team than many of the players and in theory had more sway than his young general manager but that theory was proven incorrect mike babcock turfed by the maple leafs in favor of kyle dubas's chosen one sheldon keith um are you are you still shocked this happened or after joel quenville gets fired by chicago really anything can happen I'm definitely still surprised um, just by the timing. However, if there's anything I've learned about the Maple Leafs is that they're the NHL's best soap opera. And it's just it's like secession. It's a total power trip. And if we learn anything about GMs is that they like to hire their own coaches. And truth be told, Mike Babcock was not hired by Kyle Dubas. And it was just a matter of time before the power play uh, swung in Dubis's favor. He gets the opportunity to pick his first coach. He gets the opportunity to see it through. So that's kind of where we're at now. Mm, indeed. And, uh, you know, obviously we'll be talking about, uh, Babcock in a different context in a little bit. But for now, we will leave it as the firing of Mike Babcock, super genius of the universe at number seven. Number six, <laughs> the playoff officiating screw-ups lead to significant rules changes in the NHL. Let's take you back to last spring. Do you remember when we had that incident, the Cody Eakin, Joe Pavelski situation in the Vegas-San Jose game that led to a phantom five-minute major being called? Remember when the Sharks scored all of those goals to get back in a game they were clearly out of? And then 
won it in overtime. Do you remember the missed hand pass in overtime of the San Jose series against the St. Louis Blues? Well, these are all things that happened in 2019. Also happening in 2019, the NHL decided to dramatically increase the scope of video review so officials on ice could see these things and fix them if they happened again. It all seems kind of crazy that it all happened this year, but indeed, it did. Yeah, the thing that was most notable for me was just how quickly the NHL reacted. It's something that we're not used to saying about the NHL, but there was public sentiment. There was growing concerns with the players and the coaches, and they were being vocal about it. And the NHL reverse course like and and put a fix on it in a swift and appropriate manner it was shocking and i'll never forget gary bettman having that press conference where he said that he was what was it grinding his teeth watching it and then so upset he wanted to punch his tv screen or something along Some those such. lines and i'm like is this emotion from gary bettman that he's <laughs> conveying to us uh yeah it was all pretty shocking it was it was but uh you know good i i have no problem with uh the NHL trying to get it right. You know I'm a fan of expanded replay, within reason. And I feel like in this case, allowing you know the on-ice officials to see if they missed a hand pass in a critical juncture in overtime of a playoff game, that's only a good thing. So that's what it led to. As usual, catastrophe leads to change in the National Hockey League. Number five. Emily, it was the year of the RFA. Dun, 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 dun. Restricted free agent frenzy, as we saw all kinds of star players, be they Miko Rantanen, be they Mitch Marner, be they uh, Braden Point, so, so on and so forth, uh, enter into somewhat sometimes contentious negotiations with their teams. In Marner's case, it was like World War III. And then we also saw something we rarely see in the National Hockey League, an attempted poaching. As Sebastian Ajo signed, let's remember he did sign it, an offer sheet with the Montreal Canadiens that uh, his owner, uh, Tom Dundon, immediately said, y'all know you're not getting him, right? And uh, quickly matched <laughs> the offer sheet for Sebastian Ajo. Crazy summer. Really, I mean, the kind of thing that you and I have been waiting for for a long time to happen. Some uh, contract wackiness and at least an offer sheet uh, tendered by the Canadiens. Yeah, honestly, the biggest thing, everyone was saying this is going to be the year of the offer sheet. This is the first offer sheet in Brian O'Reilly. There's just so many RFAs and so many balls in the air and, and so many talented players that are up for grab. It's going to happen. And really, the only disappointment with the offer sheet was that it was so anticlimactic. And to this day, I contend that Mark Bergevin was just doing a favor for the rest of the league saying, we don't know about this Tom Dundon guy. We don't know how he operates. I'll just see what he's about. Let's just see if we can steal one Sebastian Ajo one and slip one under him. But um, the Carolina Hurricanes are like, no, nah, we appreciate you. You set the price for us. You made this easy. He doesn't have to hold out and ended it pretty quickly. So it was anticlimactic in that sense. But fun while it lasted and fun for that bit of drama between the two storied franchises in Montreal and Raleigh. Mm-hmm. And uh, more... Uh, offer sheets, please. Even if they don't work, just do them. They're fun. And maybe, like, if you do 10 of them, like, that will be one time where you actually get the situation where the team can't afford the contract, which is, I think, what Montreal We're going to play them 10 for. times. They might win nine. We're going to give 10 offer sheets. They might take one. They might take one, right. 
Number four on our countdown to the top stories of 2019, it's the coaching reckoning. Um, ah. This was one that hit very late, obviously. We're talking in particular about the Bill, Bill Peters situation in Calgary, where Akeem Alou accused uh, uh, Peters of using uh, racial slurs uh, towards him while they were both in the American Hockey League, a story that was corroborated by two of Alou's teammates. And then later on, uh, Peters was accused of uh, kicking and uh, punching players while he was head coach with the Carolina Hurricanes, a story that was corroborated by none other than his assistant coach, now head coach of the Hurricanes, Rod Brindamore. As a result, uh, Peters uh, tendered his resignation with the Flames um, and was replaced by assistant coach Jeff Ward. That was one domino that fell. Then we had the Mike Babcock situation where his um, mental abuse of players was uh, brought to the forefront in particular. Johan Franzen, star player for the Detroit Red Wings when Babcock was the coach there, saying that he had a nervous breakdown on the bench and he was afraid to go to the arena uh, while playing for the Red Wings because of the abuse he took from Babcock. And the other thing, of course, the infamous list that Babcock had Mitch Marner create with the Leafs in which he was to rank as a rookie, rank his teammates as far as their effort on the ice, a list that Babcock then shared with the players that were on the bottom of that list, a situation that required him to apologize when the matter was brought to Leafs um, management. Finally, there was the Mark Crawford situation where Crawford was suspended, well, okay, um, put on administrative leave let's call it, by the Chicago Blackhawks for a few weeks as they looked into situations where he had uh, kicked and choked players in the past and used a homophobic slur towards uh, former player Patrick O'Sullivan. Uh, this resulted in a pretty remarkable moment later in uh, the investigation when the Blackhawks announced that he would be returning in early January and Crawford uh, penned a, a letter on the Blackhawks re- website talking about um, what he used to do as a coach and talking about the therapy he's been in for the last nine years to try to become a different and uh, better person. So all this stuff uh, happening all at the same time. It was a chaotic time. There was also unrelated to these matters, the Jim Montgomery uh, firing in Dallas uh, that happened at the same time. And, uh, and so crazy sweeping changes in the coaching ranks, Emily. Yeah, this really spurred a conversation for a lot of us about hockey culture. And what's most interesting to me, it's a conversation that hockey players maybe weren't totally ready to have. A lot of these allegations, specifically the most damning ones, uh, didn't come out in a very direct way. They were third-hand accounts. For example, the Johan Franzen one just came out because Chris Chelio said it on the Barstool uh, Sports Bit and Chicklet podcast. Uh, you got ones like... Um, the ones against Mark Crawford, which had been previously, you know, mentioned and offhand and not in the right context. For example, Brent Sopo walked his back saying, I actually said this one's as a joke. I didn't mean to throw him under the bus. Uh, Mitch Marner one was obviously reported on by the Toronto media. So all of this is to say players aren't exactly comfortable coming out forward. But I do think that this spurred a lot of introspective thinking where people are saying, okay, was the way I'm treated totally right? Do I have a voice? Can I take agency in this? And I do think going forward, GMs are going to be a lot more careful in their hiring of coaches and coaches are going to be a lot more careful in their tactics around players, knowing that they're on watch. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Um, number three on our list, 
of the biggest stories of 2019. This is kind of a combination of two things. Yeah, the Columbus Blue Jackets going all in, acquiring Matt Duchesne, acquiring Ryan Dozingle. Uh, doing all of this knowing that Artemi Panarin and Sergei Bobrovsky were uh, gonzo in the summer as free agents. They did this, they made the playoffs, and subsequently kicked the Tampa Bay Lightning right in the teeth, sweeping one of the single greatest regular season teams the NHL has ever seen out of the playoffs in four games. Tampa, uh, Columbus all in, Tampa all out, the number three story of 2019. Greg, if I remember correctly, you were there for game four, the deciding game four, correct? I was there for games three and four uh, in Columbus. What I want to know is if you could, which locker room did you go in and what's your lasting memory of what that scene was like? I definitely went to the lightning locker room. (laughs) (laughs) because You didn't want to go pop champagne with Bob and bread? For as a proud native of the great state of New Jersey, I understand the language of misery and uh, and uh, like to wallow in it. So the Lightning Room, like, listen, I've covered Stamkos before and seen him devastated. So this wasn't really that revelatory for me. But seeing like Nikita Kucherov, for example, and, and seeing how he reacted to it and, and knowing um, that that suspension that he had in the series was a, was a big moment as well. And um, just seeing people that were just shell-shocked. And the guy I'll always remember is John Cooper, the coach, who had to kind of make heads or tails of this thing. And anyone who's, who's talked to Cooper or has seen Cooper talk knows that he's a very analytical guy and introspective guy and thinks big picture about some things. And, you know, to hear a coach be like, we were too good to be able to handle adversity, which is essentially what you're saying when you're saying that we didn't play any important hockey for the like last two months. You're basically saying that we were so good that we didn't know what to do when, when, when it got bad is one of the more stunning statements I think I've heard from a coach in doing this job. But it's probably true when you compare it to a team like Columbus that scratched and clawed just to make the playoffs versus you know, the Tampa Bay Lightning sitting fat and happy on a yacht for two months. I have to say the oral history, the inevitable oral history from this playoff uh, series will be incredible just because of the ramifications. I mean, we're already seeing it. We kind of knew what was going to happen to the Columbus Blue Jackets once they let all of those players walk. They did put in a pretty nice attempt to keep Matt Duchesne around, but they're in bad shape right now. They're not a good hockey team and they're devoid of a lot of talent, a lot of draft picks for what, um, you know, they wanted to do last year. And maybe it was all worth it for that playoff win, but maybe it wasn't. Meanwhile, the Lightning just haven't recovered. And, you know, they're tracking right now as a team that might miss the playoffs if they don't get it together. And Vasilevsky hasn't quite been himself. Kucherov hasn't quite been himself since. And I almost wonder if they're going to be one of the biggest what-ifs uh, in hockey history of, look at all this talent that was amassed on one team. And what if they were able to realize it and, and win multiple Stanley Cups? But why couldn't they? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. The number two story of 2019. Ready for it? There's only a couple of stories mm-hmm. left we haven't touched on. It's the firing of Donald 
Cherry by Roger Sportsnet. This was something that happened in November. Don Cherry, Canada's most polarizing flamboyant and opinionated hockey commentator, was fired for calling immigrants you people in a television rant in which he said that new immigrants are not honoring the country's fallen soldiers by wearing the poppy. This is the um, straw that broke the cherry's back. There had been a number of other situations through the years in which Don Cherry towed the line. In this situation, business caught up with him. Uh, like we talked about on the podcast at the time, Roger Sportsnet had been courting a very diverse audience. The demographics of Toronto had dramatically changed through the years as far as sports consumption. Look at the crowds that gathered in the public squares to watch the Raptors, then look at the crowds that gathered in the public squares to watch the Leafs, and you knew that there are audiences that Rogers had to reach that they weren't reaching currently. And having the face of hockey coverage on their network refer to those potential customers as you people, bad for business. Out goes Don Cherry, much to the chagrin of a lot of people in Canada, who then all subscribed to Don Cherry's podcast after he left the airwaves. Yeah, put it simply, he was an institution, and it is shocking to see an institution crumble that quickly. Um, I think it's fair to say this is not the most offensive thing he has said on air. He has said far more offensive things, but just the timing of it and the way it was received at that time ultimately led to his demise. And I don't find it to be coincidental that just a few weeks later, we had the situation with Akima Lu coming forward against Bill Peters and the racist language he used against him, which was a decade earlier. And us having that conversation, it all comes under this umbrella about inclusiveness in hockey. And we know that hockey has a diversity problem, but are those in hockey and those with platforms doing their best to break those barriers? And truth is, not everybody is. So mm. that was a conversation that I think was important and did progress us forward. Um, but it did lead to this very shocking moment, which leads lands at number two on our list. Indeed. That means there's only one left. What could it be? I can't believe it's not the dogs, but... Not the dogs. Um, it's not World Juniors. Hmm. Oh, yeah, it's that team that won the Stanley Cup. After oh, that's the last right. Place. Yeah, the St. Louis Blues winning their first Stanley Cup in franchise history is number one story of the year. Yeah, it could be a lot of other things, but honestly, like, let's end on a happy note, right? Well, I mean, not happy if you're like a Blackhawks fan, but happy if you're like a Blues fan or a human. Not to say the Blackhawks fans aren't human. I'm just saying that it's a, a story that... Anyways, the Blues won the Cup, and um it not only was a moment where this franchise that had suffered through so many disappointments through the years uh, broke through and finally hoisted the championship, much like the Washington Capitals did one year previous. But we had some amazing stories. We had Charles Glenn, the the anthem singer with multiple sclerosis, who uh, was in his last run, and as long as the Blues kept winning, he would keep singing. And then we had the Layla Anderson story, uh, the little girl with a very rare disease, who uh, served as an inspiration to Blues players throughout the playoff run um, and uh, became a celebrity in her own right throughout the, uh, the process. Um, so many great stories, so many amazing moments. And on top of it all, Emily, a team that in this calendar year was in last place 
and roared back on the strength of great coaching from Greg, Craig Rube, great goaltending from Jordan Bennington, and an MVP performance from Ryan O'Reilly in the playoffs to win Lord Stanley's Cup. You know, everyone in the NHL loves that Thanksgiving stat, but I felt like this year not as many people used it. Maybe the Blues are the people who finally took it out of vogue. Um, their turnaround was quite simply remarkable. To be able to follow up on what the Golden Knights did a year earlier and to shock the hockey world from being a team with such little expectations to be a team that was just so hard not to root for is pretty incredible feat. And that's what the Blues did. Uh, they were a likable team. They were a veteran team. A lot of guys who had been there a long time had saw a lot of winning seasons but just couldn't get over the hump um, and to be there on the ice when they won it was really special for me and, and special for the city of St. Louis and all I have to say is like I'm not sick of play Gloria yet I could still listen to it <laughs> I know they retired it but like if it played right now I wouldn't be upset boy that was a that was a weird thing man <laughs> I can look back at it like if you had told me you the way five years ago oh by the way the St. Louis Blues Stanley Cup champions their anthem an early 80s disco tune. I'm just like, come on. But there you go. It happened. The weirdest it thing beautiful. about it was that the artist, Laura Bradigan, I believe it is, had passed away. And then her old manager was running her social media account as if she was still alive. It was right. very, very bizarre. It was the most, the most wonderful part about that was the fact that her like old manager who was running her account was getting like interview requests from people. <laughs> Hey, do you want to come on, uh, you know, Big Ted in the, in the, in the Google butt on, uh, on KXOM to talk about, you know, Gloria? And they're just, she's like, she's dead. <laughs> like, unless you're going to have a, an on-air seance, I don't think she's available. But there you go. Weird things happened for the blues. Emily and I ate a lot of toasted ravioli. It was good times. Um, weird right. thing? I'd still eat it right now if it was in front of me. Yeah, I tried to eat it as much as I could, but every time I, you know, I would have to wait five minutes into the intermission and then it would be gone because hockey writers is why. Do you know what, all Greg? Right. We can remedy this at the All-Star game this year. You're darn tootin'. Um, all right. Listen, everybody. We sincerely thank each and every one of you for listening to this podcast this year. Uh, the growth has been great. You guys are the reason for it. Um, the, the fact that the, the hockey podcast has gotten love behind the scenes at ESPN as it has, has been exhilarating. Um, and you know, the fact that, uh, you dig what we do is exhilarating. Um, there's a lot of podcasts that are competing for your time and attention. Many of them are about hockey. So to have you dig this one the way that you do is, uh, is truly Truly, truly flattering and truly, truly wonderful for, for Emily and I, and we thank you for it. Couldn't have said it better myself. We love you all. I wouldn't go that far. I mean, love is a very strong word. I, I would need more than, you know, a few dates before I get there. But uh, I'm in love with you all. I'm oh, a pushy person. There Happy it is. 2020. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm in, I'm in like admiration. <laughs> the potential's there. I swiped. It's because I you're mature right. and you're a dad. I swiped the correct way on this relationship, I think. Mm. But uh, All right, well, I have one thing to say. Yeah. See you next year. <laughs> That's ESPN on Ice. Bye. Bye. This has been ESPN on Ice with Wyshynski and Kaplan. Subscribe to the show in the ESPN app. 
or Apple Podcasts. 